This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsements. Any views expressed in this podcast are based upon the information available at the time and are subject to change. Get started then. Um, so hello everyone. Welcome back to the Dark Bite um, podcast. We have back here with us Tyler and Saksham. Um, do you guys want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, sure. I am a macro slash quantitative analyst at the Canadian Pension Fund. Awesome. And I'm Saksham. I've been with Dogbird for some time now. And yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so today we are going to talk about like some pretty um, interesting things. I think the world has gotten even crazier after the pandemic situation. So I would love to have like a discussion about that. So Saksham, um, and, uh, if you have any questions for Tyler and Tyler, if you have any questions for Saksham, uh, I think it will be great to discuss. But um, let's talk about like the biggest thing that's happening right now, um, the Ukraine and Russia um, situation and what are your guys' thoughts on it? For for me, um, the, my thoughts are on the prelude to the to the crisis, right? It, what we saw was the, we saw a market and risk off environment. Because one thing that people had to really understand about markets is the market is not afraid of um, downside scenarios, right? What the market is afraid of is uncertainty. So what you see is you see geopolitical risk being priced into the market prior to the actual invasion of Ukraine, right? And and at the beginning, before the before the full list of sanctions were being discussed, right? Before the actual invasion actually happened. But then markets work in a way where it's buy the rumors, sell the news, right? Where, where as soon as this uncertainty turns into uncertainty, the risk premium, unless it's the absolute disaster case scenario, becomes priced in and we see brief market rally, which is what we saw the last couple of days, right? Um, and overall, if you look at pattern historically, um, across um, across conflicts in the 21st century, I mean, sorry, in the 20th century and the 21st, what you see is that you see equities rally post, like post the actual invasion, right? Like, because of the pricing of geopolitical risk. And I think that's um, that's something that we have to keep in mind, right? That just because something bad happened doesn't mean the market's going to be uh, pricing downward, right? It, it is about pricing in geopolitical risk rather than price. So there's the pricing of risk rather than the pricing of result that people really have to uh, think about. So in terms of what is happening um, with the like growth stocks or the tech stocks, um, what are your thoughts on that since they were the best performers? Uh, well, you, you heard me say this many times, right? This, this, is, this is what a value cycle looks like, right? A value cycle looks like when you have a general P, uh, multiple compression comp- uh, leading to the highest multiple, na- the most expensive names being 
we we rated more heavily than the names that were that were cheap. The reason being is a uh, is that over the short term, market overshoots and why we're not going to enter growth business, and which lead to which lead to um, inflated multiples. And then what you have is that you have an event where where you have a mean reversion of mark to actual um, to to actual reality, and then that price. That is usually caused by a catalyst, and the catalyst this time is ultimately inflation. Like, so the analogy I would use uh, is for, for the markets. It isn't that the markets are solely due to uh, Ukraine because it's not like it, this is not a, not like a Ukraine-driven uh, crisis, right? Like this is what what this is is that this is. Let's say you have someone who isn't very healthy to begin with, right? Um, and they get sick because they got the flu, right? And, and and now they're in the hospital, right? Well, the underlying cause is still the fact that they were unhealthy to begin with, right? And, and the unhealthiness of the market is due to the fact that the market is due for monetary tightening, as we see. Like, they're... Right, we we're, we're set for seven, seven, rate hikes this year. Okay, um, so given that it is entirely because the market is overheating, inflation expectations over central banks have to reassert their credibility by bringing it in, and and we have a highly volatile market with PE compression. Because if you look at earnings, earnings have been good this year. Right, this is what people are not understanding. Earnings are good. That doesn't mean markets go up. Like this, because markets are all about expectation and reality, right? Earnings can be good, but if expectations are too high, given the, the multiple from last year, then uh, it was off. And what we saw was a key compression um, and value names benefited. If you look at energy, and energy has done incredibly well this year, right? Because energy has been, I mean, first of all, oil, right? Oil is up a lot. And then you have, energy names being value because they had to be underpriced, right? They used to be much, much bigger part of the index um, and much higher multiples than they do now, right? And so this is what the beginning of a value cycle looks like. And it's a, and a comp compounded with, with, the, with migration, right? So migration is a concept where during, during the, the turning of a value cycle, you have these high growth names with, unex with, with unrealistic Growth factorizations due to the multiples selling off, and and names that market has ignored over time, um, they they perform better because they outperform market expectations, right? This is and that is what sustains a value cycle, and here we are now. And people forget like all value like growth at twelve, uh, but here, people forget that over long periods of time across any slice of history, over long periods of time, growth has always been a poor factor, right? Because they tend to be overpriced by the market. And value is a dominant factor over decades, right? Across any decade they use, across multiple decades they slice, right? Like if you slice any 50 year history, right? You have value being the dominant factor. And we see that again now. And this is what, well, yeah, this is just, this is just the world going back to normal into, a post QE where inflation actually matters environment. 
these teams are not going to perform well. All right. Uh, so, Rahul, you said like a lot of things there, and you know that's a pretty good explanation of you know what's what's happened in a, on a long, longer term scale. I have a question. I have a couple of questions. You know. Uh, about various things you talk about, so inflation and rate stocks. So, so we can go sort of one by one on this. So, first of all, you know, as you said, you know, like right now we are seeing a cycle of the market where inflation seems to matter. Right? That seems to it does matter because it's up seven, it's, it's up over seven percent over two years. Right? Yeah, that's true. Like we think of the highest numbers, but what my concern here is is that could inflation actually suddenly be sort of deflated at this point? Because we probably might have hit peak inflation inflation already, because as we see, you know, a lot of it was caused by supply chain issues and uh, and those are being resolved uh, going forward into time. You know, those are more, much being resolved right now, as well as if you look at some of the consumer sentiment numbers that came out recently, you know, it seems to be down. So the consumer spending is also going down in the US in particular. So, so do you... Do you think that this inflation could actually be deflated much, much faster than expected? And is there a chance of an overreaction uh, by the central banks going forward? Uh, okay, so to tie it to one, whether or not inflation become deflation. No, like the inflation for inflation to become deflation has to be negative, right? So no, uh, so, no, no, no I don't mean so, like deflation. I'm but, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, I don't mean deflation. I'm just saying that the inflation could decelerate faster than expected. And we probably don't need that kind of a reaction from the central banks that we are expecting right now. Well, because, yeah. Just because inflation slows down doesn't mean it's not high, right? Because remember, the, the central bank's targeting is 2%, right? Um, yes. so, so even if it decelerates, let's say 5%, you can say that's a deceleration, but that's still above the central bank target. So, mm-hmm. and so whether or not it can decelerate, yeah, like it probably could because seven percent is very high. Like the risk is to the downside, but what, but relative to the two percent target, it's still going to be high, right? Because keep in mind how far we are from the target. Um, secondly, um, about supply chain, supply chain is an initial cause of, of, of the problem, right? But keep right. in mind that, that that's not what sustains an inflation cycle, and this is not what sustains this inflation cycle because a couple of things. One. Uh, if, you, if you look at the actual composition of inflation of CPI changes, right, the, co- the top contribution to core CPI, owner's equivalent rent, right, medical services, apparel, used cars and trucks, and ho- household furnishings and supplies, right? right. Not, oh, okay, o- only maybe two of those categories have something to do with uh, supply chain, right? Owner's equivalent rent is a big one. And the reason owner's equivalent rent is so high is because CPI has over long periods of time underestimated infl- inflation through owner's equivalent rent. And, his- and historically, it's-, it's lagged what the actual market has been, right? For example, if you look at case Shiller 20 city, like it's up 20%, right? And apartment rent from, from um, yeah, if-, if you look at apartment rent from online sources, right? Like it's up double digits as well, right? So CPI has to catch up to those. So the so case shows 20 cities is probably the, the, the metric that I'm gonna go with now, so 20%. So oh, what you observe over periods of time is only this equivalent rent due to the way that it's being conducted, which is through surveys of homeowners, it usually it, it lags actual reported rent and shelter prices. And as a result, it needs to catch up, right? Other, you, can't, you can't 
depressed the number forever and still and still have it be economically uh, representative. So it has to catch over time, and that catching up process gives a lot of tailwind for inflation going forward. Second, um, is that be, supply, supply chain issues is so distracting because it is because it's such a headline, right? Like you see like ships being docked at port, but like if you look at commodity prices, commodity prices are still high, right? Like commodity prices yeah. are barely changed, right? I barely went down. Um, energy prices are still high, and energy is basically you know the ultimate lifeblood of modern society. Um, and thirdly, what you have is that what you see is that makes inflation sticky, and to me confirms an extended inflation cycle is that inflation is now driven also by labor, right? So what you had for the past decade or so it's for inflation not mattering is because labor dynamic, right? So productivity has went up, um, wages have barely gone anywhere. So what you had is this big labor gap. So which was representative of the power of employers versus the power of employees, right? And mm -hmm. now you see that labor gap labor power dynamic being closed, right? With employees having more and more power and, and, and labor is incredibly sticky part of inflation, right? And as, and because of those factors, plus the fact that uh, what we say about consumer sentiment, yes, it's true, the sentiment is down, but, the, but currently the actual behavior of consumers is that they're still purchasing, right? And uh, consumer con consumption is high. Actual consumption, not sentiment. And then, and then what you see is that you see companies like um, consumer stables companies, right? For example, Procter & Gamble raising their prices, right? And um, I'm sure you heard of a simple example in, uh, in Canada as well uh, with, a, with a large company raising prices, PepsiCo. I mean, like if you go to the store right now, any Loblaws store, um, Frito-Lays will not be on the shelves. And the reason is there's a pricing dispute between PepsiCo and Loblaws. Regarding the pricing of um, of the products, where Loblaws, the and, and that goes to another tangent where pricing power. When, when someone tells you a company has pricing power, it doesn't exist, right? <laughs> Until it becomes reality, like it does, like it's, it's, it's such a fake concept, pricing power, right? right. Like nobody can accurately measure it because mm -hmm. for a decade, it literally didn't ha it didn't matter. And so what you see now is Loblaws not feeling like they could price it up and feel at least need, uh, trying to price it up, right? Uh, PepsiCo trying to, uh, to price it up. And so, and, and, and then you have Procter & Gamble raising their, their prices across the board. All of this just fuels into inflation. And lastly, what ultimately drives inflation? What ultimately drives inflation is, is real economic players acting on expectations of inflation, right? That's not what we've seen in the last decade, right? During the QE era, lowflation. I'm not going to call it, it's not deflation, but it's lowflation decade of the QE era yeah. where, where real economic players did not, did not care about inflation expectations, which is why, and that's being reflected in the data where actual inflation is negatively correlated to forward inflation expectations, right? Because what happened is that the only, the only, economic player that cared about inflation was, this, was the Federal Reserve, right? And well, that has, that's negative quality because it, it's least if either tightening or, or dovish monetary policy. But what, what you see from, from corporates is corporates didn't price based off of inflation, 
consumers um, didn't care about inflation in their purchasing decisions and labor, well, people didn't care about inflation for their wages. And as, as a result, inflation didn't matter, right? But that's not what we see now. It's that inflation is now top of mind for corporates and for labor. And, and in terms of, if you look at uh, media sentiment for inflation, well, I mean, people, uh, it's clear that inflation is top of mind, right? For the general public and corporates in general. So mm -hmm. in, in this environment, it becomes, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where decisions are being made, made based off of inflation, which leads to inflation uh, having more momentum. And so as a result, um, it's much more stickier than just a supply chain situation because the supply chain situation has been a ha has been a thing since last year with PC with a PPI, right? So that's the thing. Another thing that people don't understand about inflation is that inflation isn't can't can't be measured with just one measure, right? Inflation has multiple measures: uh, CPI, PPI, PC, etc., etc., etc. Well, for PPI, it's the measure of of uh, producer costs, right? And producer costs, the gap between CPI and PPI were at all-time highs last year. Okay, and, and that's representative of su supply chain disruption. And and so my my thesis at that time, um, and I, I think I said it on the podcast too, was that if that if if if, if CPI and the PPI gap closes due to the transfer of inflation from a supply chain problem to labor general consumer problem, mm -hmm. then that becomes much more stickier because see, PPI yeah. moves incredibly quickly, right? If you look at PPI, it, it, it also is incredibly quickly, but that's not what CPI does. So, so, what, so we, yes, we did lose this uh, tailwind for inflation in regards to uh, producer costs and supply chain, but we, we made up for it, more than made up for it in other areas. Nice. Yeah, so, so that's great. So, so let's move on to the other part, like the part we talk about, like growth stocks. So you talk about the sort of the equity risk premium and sort of the re-rating in multiples that, that, that happens. Now, oftentimes, you know, what we have is like the equity risk premium is thought to be made up of like two things typically, and it's a sort of simplistic model, but uh, one is sort of your dividend yield. And the other one is your earnings yield, sort of your earnings per share. Now, uh, as we have seen, like over this past earnings seasons, uh, you know, even the earnings have been good, they, they have been lower than expected. And as we know, profit margins and earnings are one of the more mean reverting series out there. So, so those are coming down. So, so do you think the returns going forward would be more and more driven by sort of like the dividend yield and, and should the allocations be based more on that? And could this also be another reason that the returns are not driven by dividend yields, that growth stocks are not doing as well because you know they, they typically are not dividend bank stocks at all? Well, if you look at a core component of four earnings yield is growth, right? It's expectation of growth. I think that matters to most of two things, the expectation for growth and the risk-free rate are. Right, mm -hmm. um, earnings yield I think matters less. I mean, sorry, dividend yield I think matters less by dividend yield itself because I mean, companies have just not been paying dividends <laughs> in the S and P five hundred. Um, but yeah. uh, in terms of returning shareholders, I mean, we, we are seeing some of that for buybacks, and but buybacks are not as predictable as the dividend. So, but yeah. so I, I think overall, um, it's the expectation of for the earnings yield, which is based off yeah of R and uh, or, or equity premium, like R component of. Uh, 
of valuations, which is away from equity risk premium, right? And within equity risk premium is the G component um, so for growth. And then that is based off of the fact that I think market realizes old completely overshot the growth expectation for uh, for for the unprofitable tech, right? And for, for growth names. Um, and when expectations exceed reality, despite reality being good, um, you see more contraction. And so, and uh, from a more macro lens, a lot, a lot of that has to do with um, with uh, interest rates, right? Um, so a couple of things to do with interest. Rates. Uh, one is when money becomes less free, right? You can't invest in more. Shall shall we say moonshot like projects, right? Um, so what we 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 don't get is that you don't get investors flocking into VC and etc. They, they want their money back, right? Like they, they want to make um, stable stable returns above the expected yield. Um, and second of all, what what you have is that you have these these names that you have that are in growth are long duration names because they're long duration because their their expected payoffs are far into the future versus more value names, right? right. That, that pay off that. That high, they're more stable in terms of how they pay out. Um, so you have interest rates going up, disproportionately affecting these growth growth names over value. And lastly, in the general market compression, what it is is it, it creates a catalyst for 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 long term mean reversion in in uh, valuations, right? And as you see, and that's one thing that's been that you can observe um, empirically that in the short term. Um, in, in the short term, analysts often overshoot growth expectations, and in the long term, uh, expected future returns are highly correlated to current PE, right? And that's because of uh, mean version effects in um, in multiples. Oh, all right. Um, so, and just sort of like. Uh... Sort of a question on like so the interest rate itself. So as you said, you know, a lot of is being it is being driven by uh, driven by interest rates, and yeah. another thing that's sort of driven by interest rates is you know like bonds and treasuries, right? Yeah. And and if you if you've been following bonds over the past three or four months, you know like the yields have been constantly been rising and they're yeah. high. They're almost at like almost multi-year high at this point, except for the spike in 2020. So so. What do you think is sort of the future of, you know, like bonds as a diversification instrument, as well as, you know, your traditional 60, 40 portfolio, which is essentially followed by a lot of pension funds and things like that? Well, so, I mean, 60, 40 is not really followed by pension funds. It's used as a benchmark. Um, so, yeah. and a- anyways, so for bonds, right? My, my view on bonds is that bonds are a diversifier. It depends what you're trying to diversify. Right. If if you're trying to diversify, say, in, in a vacuum, right? If you just look at it in a vacuum, agnostic of the macro environment, bonds is still a good diversifier because the point. Okay, so here's the thing about diversification that not a lot of people look at. It's incredibly important. It's called it's concept of upside unification and downside diversification. So mm-hmm. so you, you don't want to just look. So so mistake a lot of people commonly make with diversification is that they, they look at the overall correlation and make assumptions about diversification. The reasons that bonds have been so good as a diversifier is because most, a lot of assets, right, exhibit upside diversification, which is what you don't want. For example, you, you have EM equities, 
being a being people call it a diversification for DM equities, but that's not really happening because the diversification occurs when both assets are on the upsides, right? So that you're you're diversifying away your your profits. But on the downside, we see this unification where correlations increase to the downside. So you're not really getting the protection. But bonds are the opposite. On the upside, you have more unification. On the downside, you have more diversification, which is why it's been so good for so long. And mm -hmm. and also the carry component, right? It used to provide a lot of carry, but it doesn't anymore. And so 6040, in terms of relative valuation of 6040, if you look at the, the term premium of the, of the 40 part and the equity risk premium of the 60 part, the valuations are basically at all-time highs, right? Um, we're at all-time highs for 6040. Right. So the, the, it, it's a question of whether or not you see the, the 40 part. I mean, we, we already discussed the 60 part, but whether or not we see the, what happens to the 40 part. Well, yeah. so here, here's the thing of the 40 part, is that bonds are not really good diversifier in inflation, in, in, in environments of heavy inflation surprise, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, it, uh, so, so that's why you see bonds underperforming in in this environment because you have you have high inflation surprise leading to expectation of central bank action, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so for you, so sixty forty is a good, I would say, general case macro agnostic diversifier, but mm -hmm. um, in this macro environment, it is quite poor and the valuations are quite high. So, so, so you, you, you never want to fight against so 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 the thing how i think about trades is that you need to buy trades to tactical and strategic right into short-term mm -hmm. or long-term um if it's if, so what we call in the industry as a just a trade versus an investment right mm -hmm. so that the problem with 6040 is that you're it's that if you're trying to invest in over the long run you're always fighting against the the fact that the validations are all-time highs right like i said you, you, nobody can actually predict the bubbles right so, so I, i'm not i'm not calling for the pop in the bubble so uh, because nobody can actually predict it. Like, it, nobody can reliably predict that. Just because something's variation is high doesn't mean it's going to pop today. Right? It might be tomorrow, a, a year from now, uh, five years from now, whatever. But you're always fighting against uh, a ticking time bomb. right? And, and, uh, so, you, so you never want to make it a strategic core part of your investment if you're always going to fight against a ticking time bomb. Do I think there's opportunities for 64 as a trade? Yeah, I do. Um, for, well, not 64, but bonds as a trade. Yeah, I do. I think there's... The, the opportunity for that as a trade. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you're trying to front run expectations of central bank action, but yeah. as an investment, there's just too much headwinds facing it for it to be justified as an investment. I see. And so what do you think the alternative is? Just as you said, you know, it's no longer that much of a downside diversifier. Bonds are not that much of that. So what do you think the alternative is? What can, you know, investors do because uh, you know, given aging population and uh, more and more people, you know, drawing on the pensions, you know, bond-like instruments are important. So what do you think uh, people can do to protect their portfolios now that, that uh, the bonds are not, not as useful anymore? So that becomes a difference between people as in regular day people or people like me who uh, are investing uh, institutional money? Uh, let's start with institutions. I think those are more important. Okay. Institutions for institutions, right? There's a variety of tools available. For example, yeah. um, you, you uh, some of the best tools available to institutions are um, commodities, right? Not not precious metals commodities. I I personally detest precious metals, but mm -hmm. uh, energies and industrial metals are, uh, are quite good in inflationary environments and doing 
more alternative strategies like uh, um, trend following is has been incredibly good. Um, and moving everybody's more into the value cyclical space. Um, it's, I mean, the results for this year speak for itself in the value cyclical space. Um, so that's probably a quick view of um, what institutions can do. Um, in terms of what individuals could do, there really isn't much. Like that, it sucks to say because it it only apply. It also applies to my my PA, right? Like my my, my own money, right? Mm -hmm. My my portfolio. That's uh, that, that's that's that's, in, that's also impacted by this. So I, I'm a part of the populace. That's there's not much you can. That's in the not much you can do space, right? Um, mm -hmm. my advice to people would be just. Close, close your eyes and, and buy value momentum, man. <laughs> right? Like, like um, there is a, like, okay, so full disclosure. So I, I don't really care, so I'll say it. So for my PA, I, I took a 20% loss this year <laughs> because um, I've invested, because last year I had a great year, right? Because I, okay, so, so I think I, uh, did I ever tell you about my love for uh, leverage ETFs? Yes, you tell me about that all the time. All the time, right? And, and so, so my thing has been to buy a whole bunch of leverage ETFs, right? Because mm -hmm. I believe in power leverage. What, what, what I did not expect. Okay, for me, it's, it's purely a mistake on my part. And it's not even the result because I, I don't, I don't do results based logic as to say, oh, it performed well, so it's a good trade. It performed bad, it's a bad trade. I look at the logic. But for me, I, I, I really did have a flawed logic. Is that what I did not because I know that I, I, I'm. I'm pro value, but what I didn't realize was the impact of growth on the index, right? Like I conceptually know, like we all conceptually know that, oh, like tech is a huge part of the index, right? Growth is, right? Big cap tech, huge part of the index. But it never really sunk into me that index can't go up when tech is underperforming. Like it never sunk into me. So I bought a whole bunch of lever ETFs last year. I made a killing and, and most of my PNL last year, definitely. So, Last year, I, at the beginning of last year, I bought a whole bunch of uh, energy and banks, right? And that made a lot of money. And then, and then I sold all of that to buy lever ETS, right? And so my lever ETF, and, and I bought into it over time, right? But my losses at one point this year, a couple of days ago, were such that all my profit from lever ETS were completely wiped out. Mm -hmm. And so it felt really bad. And, uh, I, and I was, like, I have, a, I have a secondary account. Uh, um, and that was down 10%. Um, so, 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 I'm a, so and I'm, a, I'm a part of the cohort that, that's trying to, also trying to figure out how, for your personal money, what to do. That's like the point of the story. It's like, and, and I originally thought just S&P could do it, but then I'm changing my mind. So, so if you look at traditionally factors over time, what has done well, uh, I'm a quant guy, so I'm biased towards factors. So value momentum, and the reason value momentum is so good is because value momentum both have positive expected alpha and they have negative correlation. And they have interesting property in that it's not the type of negative co co correlation we're talking about, which is upside uh, diversification, downside unification, right? It's upside unification, downside diversification. So when value performs very poorly, historically momentum performs very well, right? Like it, that's why, that's why, on the other, on, on the flip side, that's why in 2016, quants were, quant equities were hurt so much because that's one of the only times in recorded history where value momentum both sold off, right? And yeah, so my, my so I'm I'm personally 
thing, thing. Well, I'm not selling my leverage yet because I'm, I don't sell at loss. It's just a personal thing. Um, not not saying everyone should do it. Uh, it's just a personal thing. I, 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 like I'm not selling, but if for my additional capital, right? For example, my bonus, I'm I'm putting it into uh, value momentum ETS, right? So I'm, I'm gonna put my money where my mouth is for value momentum because I believe in uh, in, in times where inflation has been, where where regimes change back to this is back to actually a more normal state of things if you think about it than the last 10 years of QE lowflation um back to a nor- more normal state of things we can expect what has normally worked to work which is value momentum and just nothing and especially because you have the tailwind of value spread being so high which is basically the value the relative valuation value being low right so you have that tailwind for you for value momentum so yeah, I'm I'm just going to go back to good old value momentum, and because I do not have enough money to trade uh, commodity futures. <laughs> yeah, um, and do you have any questions? I have a few other small ones, but if you have, please. Go ahead. Um. Yeah, you can ask your questions, section. Oh, all right. Um. Sure. So I mean, these are sort of like. Uh, sort of smaller, maybe slightly unrelated questions, Ooh. but, uh, you know, you talked about like, you know, leverage ETFs and your love for them, um, so, <laughs> right? Yeah. So what I wanted to know, like, you know, like with these ETFs and a lot of these passive products on the market, uh, they do create their own sort of flows in the mm-hmm. market, and, mm-hmm. right? So what, do you, what are your views on, you know, how powerful these flows are, you know, especially, you know, either from the options market as well as, you know, ETFs, especially leverage ETFs and structured products, which are increasingly becoming more popular uh, in, in the U.S. and North American markets. You know, they're usually popular outside, but they're becoming increasingly popular here as well. So so what do you think, you know, how they sort of have affected the market, you know, over the past uh, few years, you know, given, you know, the option volumes today are like at record highs and things mm-hmm. like that. You oh, see yeah. that impact? Oh, incredibly powerful. Um, I, I, the impact of that cannot be cannot be overstated. And retail flows has been a core part of what becoming an increasing core part of what we look at, right? Um, and flows. I, I, and okay, so I, I'll give a very interesting example, right? The impact mm-hmm. of flows. Um, so, have you guys heard of a thing called index arbitrage, index reconstitution arbitrage? Uh, so basically how it works is, uh, per, per, perfect example. let me pull up an example for you guys. Um, I, I, I think you look up the exact picture so I don't like mislead people. Um, so what happened? Okay. So you guys remember when Tesla entered into the, into the S&P. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, AIV was the uh, company that got removed from the S&P. When Tesla got it. So, so let, let's say I can send you back in time, okay? Um, at the point of the reconstitution for a quick trade, right? For a quick trade, six months. Mm-hmm. And if, if I give you, the, if I send you to the day before the reconstitution, you know the Tesla's going to get added, AIV's going to get deleted. What do you buy? What do you sell? That's a long short. By the S and P five hundred or the or Tesla? No, no, no. Uh, tes- Tesla AIV because you know Tesla's gonna get added into the S and P five hundred. You know AIV is gonna get removed. 
Probably, you... yeah, I would. So, 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 what you? Well, I mean, what you're actually supposed to do, and what turns out to be reality, is that you, is that you buy AIV and sell Tesla because the flows are so strong. Uh, the, uh, during the reconstitution date, that that it completely overrides any of the market's pricings before, right? So, so you have four, tons of forced inflow into Tesla as a result of the reconstitution. You have tons of forced outflow from AIV as a result of the reconstitution. And so what you take really is that you're taking advantage of the forced inflow and forced outflow and you're buying the dip on AIV and, and selling the rip on Tesla, right? Um, and so as you, you should, uh, and it turned out to be reality, right? Where, where Tesla performed poorly post reconstitution um, and AIV performed very well. AIE, uh, if you have $100 invested in December 18th, uh, you would have, in AIV, you would have made $160 and Tesla that would have became a uh, 90 and S&P by itself would be 113. So that's quite a powerful a long short. And that's a result of flows, right? Flows have been so strong that trades like these are working in the S&P 500, right? These are the 500 largest names right, in the world. Like this is traditionally something people usually do in Russell 3000, but because flows have been so strong in the S&P 500, it works. But again, it's not gonna work every time, right? You have to do it consistently. Um, and over over long periods of time, it it will pay off. Um, but yeah, so th- th- that's kind of my point. Where and and then, and then you have basically this uh, kind of chipping away at S and P over time, which is why S and P is technically not the best index. But I mean, you don't have a better alternative uh, because these dynamics chip away at it. Um, but flows are incredibly strong. And as you said, our option market exploded for retail. Um, we look at retail all the time. Like you, you, you cannot ignore the power of retail investors now. Right. Yeah, not especially after GameStop. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like the pump and dump is real. <laughs> right. Um, so I guess sort of as a final question that, that I would have for you today would be, you know, uh, you know, what would be, what, like, and it's a very broad question, but, you know, what do you think would be the future of sort of the U.S. markets going ahead? As you said, you know, we're going back into value, we're seeing value momentum now, but, uh, like, do you think that the U.S. market would continue to provide the outsized returns relative to other markets like Europe or even Canada? Like, uh, is that, will it continue to do that? Or, or do investors start looking, like, outside? Do they start focusing on, like, developed, uh, global markets or even EMs, you know, like is yeah. is, is it time to uh, look at that as as well? You know, so so yeah, in terms of absolute returns, I think U.S. market, I, I, I'm bullish, right? Um, so mm-hmm. I, so I, I'm bullish. So I think U.S. market perform on absolute returns, but in terms of relative, um, I I don't think so because, uh, okay, here's the thing that I need to clarify is that before I say anything is that. Index, you should invest in Europe itself. Europe itself is not valid. There's still growth value in Europe, right? Because it's an index. It's like a region. But relative to US, it's fixed value, right? And same thing with Canada uh, versus the US and in terms of um, UK. So UK, Europe, and Canada has performed too well due to the relative valuation to the US S&P 500. Um, and in terms of flows, yeah, investors have been moving away um, in terms of both bonds and equities. Um, so if you look at f- institutional flows, um, 
investors will be selling out of the US and going into Canada and Europe and UK. And same mm-hmm. thing, and basically in bonds is selling out of US and into anything but US. Um, so so we are we are seeing that. Uh, yeah, we are seeing that over time, but I, I'm always hesitant to recommend it because I mean, the risk is also higher right, going into if, if an individual, individual investor takes their money and invests into EM, right, or whatever, like the risk is also higher. So, so I, I think for like the general investment, investing public, right, like 95% of people in the world should just still buy S&P because, you know, like it's not going to be bad. It's, um, yeah. And these are still some of the largest companies in the world. So, but in terms, so it won't, so, so it's not going to like, suffer like come it's not it's nothing terrible is going to happen fingers crossed um chances are nothing terrible but volatility is much much higher in the EMs, man, um than than in the uh, u.s and europe has a headwind of you know european has an elephant in the room that's european energy prices and uh yeah so they're just these countries have been doing well it's just whether or not it's time, time for institu- institutions to look at it and more investors with more experience, 100%. Um, uh, but whether or not for the investment public, like for, I, I, here's, here's just one thing that, going to a side tangent, um, hope you don't mind. Um, one thing that I, my view has changed over time in regards to how um, most people like, should invest. So, including me, like, like I, I invest incredibly in vanilla, right? I mean, besides my, the leverage part. Um, mm. I invest incredibly in vanilla. I, I don't pick stocks, right? I don't do, like, currencies. I, I don't invest in FX. Uh, I'm incredibly vanilla. And the reason being is, so one thing you notice is that a lot of the really sophisticated quants in the world, right? They, they tell their friends and family to do what's called the, uh, the, the bogglehead, right? So John Bogle's philosophy is, Buy index, you know, keep investing. The reason being is that's the most reliable. That's the most reliable way to get the most reliable result, right? As in, it's like the eighty twenty rule. Like you spend twenty percent effort, you get eighty percent of the result, right? Right. Um, when doing this, and so, uh, like I, I think most people should invest in an incredibly vanilla way, because it's just the easiest way to get results. And and I'm kind of on board that I, I do do factors because I mean that's my job to do factors. So I, yeah. I I do factors, but most people should be incredibly manila with it. Um, I don't even think most people should do leverage ETFs. I do it because I looked at the um, I did the math behind it for the geo, for the uh, modified geometric Brownian motion. Um, so I I, I I like I know I know the risk of the leverage ETFs, and I accept and also the fact that I don't spend money. Like I spend like less than a thousand dollars a month, like mm-hmm. because I spend like no money. Okay, so like, and I find mm-hmm. it pays pretty well. So I spend no money. Uh, let, let's let's put it this way: I am spending the income of someone who makes ten times less than I do. Um, so, so it makes so yeah, it makes ten percent what I make. I'm that's how much money I'm spending. Uh, the income of somebody that low. So like, I can't afford to just you know do risky yolo shit right like um it's but most people should just invest manila right that's how you stick it that's how that's how you stick in the trade right just blindly close your eyes 
and by the end that. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of a long-winded answer to to the to that it's because a lot of these things I, I think is is complex to think about, which is why I yeah, like which is why I think something a view I have that sounds really weird is for ninety five percent of people following the mark following the markets does nothing for their portfolio. Hmm. Like I, it's actually it's worse for the portfolio. But it's just, it's just a view I had to change over time with with my with me embracing more quant as you know part of my job. <laughs> right. Um, I guess uh, I guess I just one small follow up to that. Uh, you mentioned you know like more recently you saw like a lot of institutional outflow out of the U.S. Mm-hmm. and into you know other sort of developed markets in Asia, uh, both Europe and Asia. So so do you think that you know what do you think that entails for the uh, U.S. dollar per se? You know like do we see a lot more weakness in the dollar going forward, even though you're seeing interest rates go up? And and if you do see some weakness going forward into the dollar, does it does that make sort of EMs a little more attractive? Because honestly, one of the largest risks while investing in EMs is your foreign exchange risk, because you know it's really really mm-hmm. uh, costly to hedge, mm-hmm. and you know a lot of your returns are sort of wiped out as soon as you convert back your mm-hmm. investments to dollars. So so so, what are your thoughts on that? So so for 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 dollar like that's. I mean, like you said, that's you mentioned the interest rate. That, that that's always going to be a tailwind for U.S. dollar is the relative interest rate. Um, right. So that that's that that's hard to say, um, mm. because I I think the U.S. dollar should have been up much more this year, right? Because the expectation of Fed tightening relative mm. to global central banks uh, this year. Um, but because of those outflows, that you know kind of offset it. So it's uh, it's up, but not as up as much as I, as much as it should. It's probably the um the way you think about it. Um, I I I used to do a lot more FX than I do now. Like for now, honestly, I'm of the belief that like nobody fucking like it's just my personal belief, right? No, nobody knows about FX. <laughs> so I don't think about it. Um, because I, for for me, my uh, even though yes, these are huge costs. The, your equity PNL is going far away anything you do in FX, right? Um, because it's just high You just do more size, and size just volatility wise is higher. Um, yeah, like uh, I, I my my honest answer, if I'm being completely honest, is I, I have no clue, right? Uh, but but like no clue for like I said I don't have say ninety percent confidence, right? But if you ask my ask me for my seventy five percent confidence answer, mm-hmm. um, I, I think U.S. dollar weakens solely because people I think people will be disappointed at how much the Fed would Fed would tighten. I don't think the Fed will tighten nearly as much as the market think it will, mm-hmm. um, because historically the market has co- completely overshot um, expectations of tightening. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think your star is going to uh, be weaker um, going to end of the year because solely because of that dynamic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so that's all the questions I have for now. So I don't know, Han, if you have any more 
you can ask. Yeah. So, but, so, yeah. so, so one, one thing that I wanted to let all know that uh, just you might find interesting. You know how last time come about Metaverse? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Guess, guess, guess what I bought? Oh. <laughs> I, I, bought, I bought a MetaQuest too. <laughs> oh, no way. Really? Yeah. You actually got into the Metaverse. Uh, not the Metaverse. I, I, I do it because what happens is that we, we have like a $500 health and fitness expense and someone found and, and I can expense like a VR headset. Nice. Um, for exercise, right? Quote, unquote exercise. So I, so I bought one. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, 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 so I bought one recently. Uh, wow. So I bought one last week. I've uh, been, been playing around with it. I, I, honestly, like, I, I, I take back some of what I said, but not all. And that VR headsets a lot better than I thought than I thought they are. But really? but it's also not as good as I think they are. In that um I I know we're quickly wrapping up, but this is just my experience with my versus this. Um I find that using it for like I'll say anything anywhere over an hour sucks. Right? Like an hour is probably like my mind because your eyes get really dry and right. Mm. And, 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 and like and as such, and plus you lose peripheral vision, and the fact that you're not moving um, is disorienting. Mm. Um, but the visual fidelity of the headset is better than I expected. It's not obviously not perfect, but it's much better than I thought than, than I thought it was because I haven't had experience of mod like Quest Two, and Quest Two is also a very high resolution headset, right? So um, yeah, like. Uh, but overall, metaverse. I mean, the kind of metaverse itself. I'm not still not believing because I, I think online communities and and such online and, and virtual worlds have been around for a long time. I I mean, from my age, I, I played RuneScape growing up. Uh, so, I, um, yeah, that's a virtual world. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I got I got into a quest. Uh, did you have a quest? Um. No, but I was actually thinking you of should, buying should, one. It's, it's worth it. Like, like that. That's actually one thing I changed my 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 thoughts on is that it's actually really worth it to buy one. Like that's that's the big that's my biggest change. It's like this is much more uh, worth it worthwhile purchase than I expected. So, and because okay, so for me it's because um, I don't like to scream, but. Beat Saber, I mean, it's incredibly good for exercise. Um, and also, you can watch 3D movies, and so you can watch, and you can watch movies in headset, and so that's like, but yeah. Anyways, I, I'm sh- I, I'm just I I'm just excited getting a Quest Two. I know I talked to you about Metaverse, so I, I I'm just here shilling a Quest Two. <laughs> that sounds really fun. Yeah, that's actually one of on on my buy list for this year because well, Mark Zuckerberg has been shoving it down our throat too much. <laughs> But yeah, thank you so much for um, like giving the talk. Yeah, and, and thank you uh, for the interesting questions. It, it, um, it, it was a really great discussion. So I really, really appreciate the uh, uh, inter- interesting thought-provoking questions, Sasha. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, those were great. Thank you so much. Well, yeah. um, that's pretty much wrap up our podcast for today. So I'll see you guys next time then. Yeah, see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.